Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. The Portland filmmaker Irene Taylor's new film, which is now streaming on Max, is about art and commerce, intimacy and racism, mortality and hope. Taylor explores all of these potentially disparate subjects through the prism of trees. The film is called Trees and Other Entanglements. Taylor interweaves her own personal story with the overlapping and intersecting narratives of a whole bunch of other people. The late Northwest timber magnate George Weyerhaeuser, the photographer Beth Moon, the Oregon bonsai professional Ryan Neal, and others. Irene Taylor joins us once again. Welcome back to Think Out Loud. Thank you so much. I've read that the seeds for this new film were planted when you read The Overstory. That's the Richard Powers book that we talked about with him a couple years ago, uh, made up of a bunch of connected stories about people who all have their own relationships with trees. What effect did the book have on you? Well, I, in fact, did not read it. I listened to it walking every day through Forest Park. Oh, that sounds like a great way to do it. Yeah. Well, I live here in Portland and I know those trails well. And so I would just walk for hours, um, much like... Two films ago, when I was making a film about Beethoven, I would walk in the forest for hours listening to Beethoven. <laughs> okay, so that's that's how you took it in. Mm-hmm. What effect did it have on you? You know, I think what Richard Powers did so profoundly was he took these human beings and he showed us how trees connected them and also kind of drove them apart in their endeavors But what I really appreciated about his work of fiction, where he could have made anything possible, is that all of his characters did not neatly tie together, even though they were connected, they didn't connect perfectly. There was some messiness to it. And that really made it feel to me like a documentary book of nonfiction, because in nonfiction, you can't always like tie everything up in a neat bow like that. Did you was it a kind of one to one thing where you you listened to this book in a place you knew well and and loved and said I want to do my own version of it was it that simple I think it was really more the challenge of knowing I wanted to make a film about trees but trying to use um trees as a flashpoint, or as you put it, a prism. I think that is somewhat what his book does. But I think comparing a book to a nonfiction film that I wanted very much to be a cinematic endeavor, I was thinking about all the other layers of visuals and audio and music. And I, I think my film was a little more haunting, maybe, than his book attempted to be. Um, so I, I just said to myself, I know these connections must exist in the world out there with real people. Early on in the movie, you're in, um, Southwest Portland in a forest, um, based, you know, the area around your backyard and city land trying to tear down some massive ivy vines. I mean, I, I hesitate to even call them vines at some point. They're, they're like tree branches strangling some trees, What was driving you? As wacky as it sounds, uh, every time I looked out at the trees in my backyard, I saw my father, who's been the subject of several of my films, I saw my father dying. 
He was dying at the time. He's no longer with us. And he had Alzheimer's. Well, Alzheimer's is simply described as plaques and tangles sort of infesting the brain and, and gumming up the brain pathways. So I would look out at these trees and I would see trees, some of them in my backyard, were completely covered in ivy. Like you couldn't even see the bark anymore. Mm. And I just kept thinking of my dad's brain suffocating in the same way. It's a bit odd. Everyone in this film is a bit odd, including me. And I decided to put my own story in uh, because even though it started as a globally minded film, eventually I brought it almost entirely to uh, the United States and Canada. So I really just wanted to um, use my own story also as a way of bringing my entanglements into trees and with the other characters as well. Did spending a couple hours and taking down a couple vines in a forest that is sort of choked with them at places, did it provide any moments of solace to you? Oh my gosh, yes. I did it more than a couple of hours. I mean, I'd say over the course of a year, I probably spent a total of 60 hours outside. I mean, I'm an outdoors person, but I I would routinely go out by myself. Sometimes I would take my, at the time, eight-year-old son, who uh, was always just a good companion, and he liked to saw at the, at the ivy. But sometimes the ivy would uh, have a girth of five, six inches. It would look like a tree itself. Had you made a feature film, a feature length film like this before that is less of a linear narrative with a sole focus and more, it actually reminded me a little bit of Errol Morris's movie, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control that I saw back in the 90s. <laughs> These, like, I think it was four people who all were sort of variations on, on um, obsessive themes. There are differences between that movie and yours, but had you made a movie like this before? Uh, I had not made one quite this, uh, yes, disjointed. And, and, and it's funny that you bring up Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control because I made the film with uh, Peter Richardson, who's also a filmmaker based here in Portland, very acclaimed film director, nonfiction film director, um, who helped me produce the film. And he had us, he was like, let's watch that film again. Hmm. So we watched that film at one point while we were editing. Um, and was it helpful? It was it was helpful. It was very different. Um, it was sort of kookier than yeah. mine. I think mine's a little more haunting because I actually do find the subject matter of trees uh, to be quite haunting. Um, what do you What do you mean when you say haunting? You know, I think um, trees are so mighty looking, especially where we live here. I mean, when in the Northwest we just take trees with a you know six foot wide girth for granted. You know, we don't think too much about it. But they are so vulnerable in our ability to harm them directly and obliquely just through our common practices every day is so profound. So I find the whole thing, uh, like uh, I say in the beginning of the film, that, you know, we move as humans through time and space, but trees have to stand still and they cannot escape anything we do to them. Can you introduce us to George Weyerhaeuser? He's he's one of a number of fascinating people in the movie, also somebody who's no longer with us. Yeah, the Weyerhaeuser name, of course, is a very big one here in North America, um, a multi-generational timber family um, that were for a long time a family-owned company. And under George Weyerhaeuser's, uh, he was the... F- 
under his leadership, it became a corporation, a public company. And he led the company for more than 30 years as both president and CEO. And he um, he really uh, had a fascinating life before he ever came to lead the company. And that was, uh, he grew up, of course, with father, grandfather, great-grandfather, who were also uh, timber barons. But he, at nine years old, uh, was kidnapped during the Lindbergh baby era in the 1930s. And he was kidnapped. Uh, and he says in the film it was probably because of trees. Meaning because he came from a very publicly, wildly wealthy family. Yeah, by today's standard, his ransom was about four and a half million dollars. Um, it was two hundred thousand at the time, but uh, it was a big deal, and it was a big deal that he was returned unharmed. And one thing that is not in the film that many people don't know is that George Weyerhaeuser eventually, after he was released and went to college, went into the Navy and had his life, uh, he hired one of his kidnappers after he was re- released from prison. Huh. And we get the sense in watching the movie um, that it made a dramatic impact on his life that, that lasted. Not Maybe not surprisingly, he was in a hole in a forest by himself for something like a, a week. Um, but he talked, when you talked to him, many, many, many decades later, I mean, it, it was still a part of who he was. Absolutely. In fact, when I sat down with him, um, which I was very honored to do, I will say, Uh, When I sat down with him right out of the gate, he started talking about his kidnapping. I mean, before I even asked him a question. Hmm. I want to play uh, a short scene from the movie. George Weyerhaeuser is outside on his large, not surprising, property with uh, his family. And at this point, uh, his son asks him a question. What's your favorite tree on the property? My favorite tree? Yeah. Oh, I don't know, Dad. There's some damn big ones. This is a man whose professional life was devoted to chopping down and replanting, it's worth saying, a mind-boggling number of trees. Do you think that not having an emotional connection to trees was necessary for him to do what he did? Well, I would think so, uh, for what that is worth. (laughs) Uh, But I also, you know, I admit I was quite obsessed as the mother of several boys uh, who were all nine years old at one time. uh, I was obsessed what his relationship to large trees must have been like after being in that ditch, in a forest, being fed plates of food, you know, several times a day for more than a week. I, I cannot fathom what that must have looked like to be a child of maybe four and a half feet tall looking up at these 200, 250 foot tall giants. It also made me wonder why later in his life he developed such a penchant for tiny trees. He, uh, The film goes on to talk about how the Weyerhaeuser uh, corporate collection of bonsai, which grew out of a relationship the company was having with Japan back in the 60s, he became the company became the greatest collector of bonsai. And I thought, what is that connection for him? Because he says that he doesn't really see trees as art. But I think he appreciated them. And I couldn't help but to wonder if they were also 
never threatening to him because because, because they were they had been miniaturized. Yes, but permanently you know, kept small. Th- this is this is. Let me be clear. This is my imagination speaking here. I, I I can't say that for certain. And I, but I think this is where I was able to use a lot of my imaginative muscle in this film, whereas some of my previous films may have been a little bit. Uh, less oblique and more direct and more journalistic. This one, I allowed myself uh, a little bit more artistic license. Hmm. You know, as we talked about before, um, as you were making this movie, as you were starting out, your father was dealing with dementia, something we talked about the, the last time you were on, and approaching the end of his life. Do you think that had an impact on your interest in this old man, on George Weyerhaeuser? Hmm. Well, I think it's fair to say that when I met him... Uh, I certainly did not know that he would die three months later. But when I met him, I felt a familiarity uh, that was both charming and uh, saddening to me because uh, his family did tell me he was getting along in his age and he uh, may not uh, be available for more than a half hour because his mind would just wander so, um, yes, I think uh, I saw him absolutely as a human being. I saw him as a father. I saw him as a colleague. And I certainly never met one person uh, who knew him personally that had bad things to say about him. So I knew that he was a man of great character. Um, but I also knew that he helmed this company through uh, certainly uh, an innovative part of its history, which was tree planting and uh advancing a new kind of high-yield forestry, but I also knew that he presided over the most efficient era of clear-cutting ever. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with the Portland filmmaker Irene Taylor. Her films include Here and Now, Moonlight Sonata, and Leave No Trace, films we have talked about in the past. Her latest, which is now streaming on Max, is called Trees and Other Entanglements. Another person you spend a lot of time with is the Oregon bonsai professional Ryan Neal, who has been on... Uh, Oregon Artbeat this year. He's been on, was on this show uh, maybe seven years ago or so. If folks want to try to dig that up, I want to play a clip of him talking about some of the work he's done. This is after he, he has um, moved aside some branches to show some of the um, the otherwise hidden branches um, and trunk. And you've said it, it seems like he knows what these trees look like naked. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know what they look like naked. Well, because I've been so intimate with them. Uh, yeah, I've been super intimate with them. I mean, boy, with Baker, it's had roots grafted to it. It's had roots ripped off of it. It's had all of its root system bent and highly manipulated. My technique was like super raw. This tree has really, it's really been through a lot. Yeah. How did the time you spent with Ryan Neal, and it seems based just on the scenes in the movie that you spent a lot of time with him. How did it change the way you think about human relationships with trees? Hmm. Well, I think Ryan really taught me, as he uh, really exemplifies in the film, that trees teach him something about resilience. Um, I heard him say last night when we premiered the film at the Tomorrow Theater with the Art Museum that 
I followed him during the worst year of his life. And yet uh, he could look at a 4,500-year-old bristlecone pine with my camera watching him and say, this part of the tree is dead. This part of the tree had a fire, but it lived. This part kept growing. That is a life well lived. And we see the scars, but we see the tree is still here and it endures. And I think really that um, ultimately is probably my biggest takeaway from the film um, is just the, the, the ability for trees to just endure. <laughs> you have an absolutely gorgeous series of shots of the photographer Beth Moon making platinum prints, a phrase I guess I'd heard before, but I don't think I'd ever seen anybody m- make them. Can you describe, this is so unfair because it's, it's, <laughs> it's such a visual thing, but can you just describe essentially what, what we see? So Beth uh, basically makes large contact prints for people who know the old darkroom technique style, but she basically paints this uh, very um, – she, she, she paints the paper with a chemical compound so that the – uh, the the image will adhere to it, and then she pours chemicals over that in a large tray. So if she's making a 16 by 20 print, she's basically exposing it to light and then putting it in this tray and pours the chemicals over it. And we, my director of photography, Nick Midwig, and I, we built a, uh, a rig over um, – over her printing process so that we could film it just from the top down. And so there's this delightful reveal of several of her images uh, in the darkroom while she's printing them. But the beautiful part of it is something you really cannot see, which is that the process here is the most archival that you can possibly achieve in darkroom photography. And as she puts it, the trees will or I'm sorry, the prints of the trees will outlive us all and probably the trees. She says these these pieces of paper impregnated with, with tiny bits of metal that they'll last thousands of years potentially. Absolutely. And I think therein is something haunting in a bit in, in, in a sense because they will live on, as she puts it, they will live on. And I just thought, you know, really, she's making them immortal. And... I think we arguably are headed towards a place in our future where ancient trees that really show the signs of 5,000 years of life. I mean, think about that. 5,000 years, what's happened over that time. We will, we may never see that again because our climate may have changed so much that we can't support, our climate can't support life to a tree that long. So I think uh, she has created, a, you know, an immortal, an immortality for these icons. Hmm. Near the end of the movie, there's a shot of you dragging these huge branches of English ivy and then hanging them up near your house. These are trees that, as you said, or vines that, as you said, you'd see them and, and you could not help but think about your father's Alzheimer's. Why hold on to them? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you, I, first of all, I found them beautiful once I took them off the tree because they held the shape of the tree. 
So you could imagine, it's kind of like when your brain fills in the blank, you hear the beginning of a song, and then you hear the chorus in your head, even if it never plays, you know, I think you see the recess of this tree's life that it was suffocating. And if you take the ivy off carefully enough, it's, it's a semicircle, or even almost an entire circle, you can like peel it off. And so I hung those after my father died because it made me feel like he was there. And I saw this, uh, this, this case around air, but then I could, with my imagination and my love and my memories, kind of fill in the gaps. Irene Taylor, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. Irene Taylor is a Portland filmmaker. Her latest film, which uh, just premiered last night for streaming on Max, is called Trees and Other Entanglements. Some of her earlier films include Leave No Trace, Moonlight Sonata, and Here and Now.